open up in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 47. Psalm 47. And as you were doing so, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 47. And I'm going to read in your hearing the entirety of the psalm, verses 1 through 9. Psalm 47. This is the word of the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Go ahead and find your seats, brothers and sisters. Church, we have gathered here once again, as we always do on God's day. And and the question this morning that needs to be asked is, why? Why why are we here? And And I realize that that sort of question could be answered numerous ways. Perhaps you are here because your parents have forced you to be here. Perhaps you are here just sort of out of habit. This is, this is just sort of what we do. Hopefully, though, your reason for being here is a bit less cynical. You might say something like, well, I am here to worship. I'm here to worship because God has made me, and God upholds me, and God has in Christ redeemed me. And of course, that is all true. Those are all God-honoring reasons why you and I ought to gather for worship. But I want you to notice that Psalm 47 takes a slightly different approach. Catch this. According to Psalm 47, God is the sovereign king of the world. And you know what? Kings are worthy of worship. So one of the reasons, and at least according to Psalm 47, the chief reason that we are here is because your king has been crowned and you owe him worship. Now, as you know, we have been looking at the Psalms together on Sunday morning. We've seen how God has given us an inspired hymnal, songs really, for for both saints and sinners alike. And as we've been surveying this hymnal, the the Psalter, we've looked, we've, we've discovered that there's various types or kinds of songs or songs. And so this morning, we're going to focus our attention on what are generally called either enthronement psalms or royal psalms. 
And what sets these out apart from the rest is that these are specific songs that the people of God would sing together to celebrate some momentous event in the life of the king. And so these royal psalms, they might be sung when the king returns victorious in a battle. Or the people of God would gather and sing these royal psalms, say, at the wedding of the king. Psalm 47, though, is uniquely marvelous. It's uniquely marvelous because the king that is celebrated here is no earthly king. We're not talking first and foremost about King David or King Solomon. The king that is exalted here is God himself. So for you and I to really get our heads and hearts around this psalm, I want you to see its structure first. Very briefly, I want you to see that this psalm has a shape to it. I would invite you to think of it this morning as a skeleton. I want you to show you the bones of this psalm, and then in a couple of moments, we'll go back through and glory in the skin and tissue and muscles of this. But you have to have the skeleton first, because the skeleton is what holds everything together. If you zoom out from Psalm 47, what you will see is that there are three reasons why the nations are to worship God the King. And those three reasons are spelled out by that little three-letter word that you find there in verse 2, verse 7, and verse 9. It is the word for. God the King is to be worshipped, verse 2, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared. Or in verse 6, the world is summoned to sing praises to the King. Why? Verse 7, for God is the King of all the earth. You see the same flavor at the end of the psalm in verse 9. The princes of the world have gathered to worship God the king. End of verse 9. For the shields of the earth belong to God. So the point is from 30,000 feet. This psalm exalts God as the sovereign king. And the world is summoned to confess and to embrace their king. So with that skeleton laid out, let's put some muscle on those bones. As I said, this psalm summons the world to worship God three times. The first is found in verse 1. We read, or better said, sing, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Notice first, church, you are not the only one in view here. That is to say, it is not just God's covenant people who were called upon to worship. It's who? All peoples, we are told. This psalm goes out as sort of a summons from the east to the west, from the north to the south. All peoples, Jew and Gentile, man, woman, black and white, young and old, all the world is to worship God the King. When verse 1 declares that all the world is to clap their hands, it is referring to the sort of celebration that would take place when a king is coronated. This was to be a joyous occasion. We might think of every four years when a particular political party's candidate wins an election. This was sort of the attitude, the momentum of Psalm 47. 
Similarly, the verb that is translated there as shout to God, it carries with it the idea of a staccato sound of an instrument or a human voice. The point is, verse 1 is no funeral dirge. Psalm 47 paints the picture of a raucous party. And this great king, he should be worshipped. Why? Well, verses 2 through 5 answer. God is the great king over all the earth. End of verse 2. And he has displayed his power by acting on behalf of his people. He has, verse 3, subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He has chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. So you ask, well, what has God done? God has defeated the enemies of his people. This no doubt harkens back to the days of Joshua, when the people of Israel took Canaan, the promised land. The psalmist here is conscious of the fact that it wasn't Israel's military prowess that won them those victories. It was God. He fought for them. He defeated their enemies. God had determined to give them that land, and God had determined to do so because God loves his people. And so don't miss this. The psalm beckons the world to worship God the king, the king who fights for and delivers his people. Verse 6, echoing verse 1, rouses the world to worship yet again. This time, it is as if the psalmist can't contain himself. Look at verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises is what we hear. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. The psalmist is saying, lift your voice. Praise the king, O you his subjects. He is your God. He is your king. He is worthy of your worship. Why? Again, verses 7 and 8 answer. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Verse 8 now, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Notice again, Christian. In this psalm, God is not just the king of the Jews. Or is God just the king of the church or some spiritual realm way up high in outer space? No, God is king of all the earth. Verse 7. Which means this spinning rock that we are all glued to belongs to God. God, verse 8, reigns over the nations, plural. Not just one nation, not just Israel, but all nations. For all the differences and cultures and, and beauty and diversity that exists from one end of, globe, uh, from one end of the globe to the other. Each and every nation is called to worship the one true and living God and to worship the one true and living God as king. If all of that wasn't enough, the psalmist continues to put the pedal to the metal. Rather than sort of back off and appear to come across too triumphant, too optimistic, notice at the end of the psalm he goes all in. And he does so in some pretty remarkable ways. 
Consider this. In verse 1, it's all peoples who are called upon to clap their hands and to shout to God with loud songs of joy. Fair enough. Then in verse 6, the earth is summoned to sing praises to God, to sing praises to Him. By the time you reach verse 9, you reach something of the crescendo. I say that because who is gathered around the throne to worship God? Verse 9, the princes of the peoples. That's Old Testament language. Today we might say something like this. Who is to worship? The nobles, the lords, the mayors, the governors, the presidents, the prime ministers. All the kings of the world, they have gathered to worship, Revelation 19, verse 6, the king of kings and the lord of lords. But that's not all. That's not even the most shocking part. Look at verse 9 once more. They gather, verse 9, as the people of the God of Abraham. You see, the nations, the world, the Gentile nations and their kings and their their rulers, they are gathering as what? Notice verse 9. Not as Gentiles, not as unbelievers, not as pagans, not even as defeated foes. They are gathering, as verse 9 puts it, as the people of the God of Abraham. And so the nail that verse 9 is pounding is this. The nations will flock to worship the true and living God, and the nations will do so as part of the covenant. They'll do so as part of God's people. They won't be outsiders looking in. They will be counted as Abraham's children. The picture that is painted here in verse 9 is that all the world, all the nations, they have come to bow the knee, but not cringingly. They're not coming bowing the knee as if they are defeated foes. They bow as the people of the God of Abraham. Church, they gather as part of the church. Now I realize this raises all sorts of important questions. One of them is, well, why on earth will all the nations flock to worship God? And the end of verse 9 answers this way. For the shields of the earth belong to God. They belong to Him. This idea of shields belonging to God, there are two ways to understand it. And both, at the end of the day, mean essentially the same thing. On the one hand, the ESV translates this as shields. And the idea here is that shields are supposed to refer to to weapons or sort of symbols of power that the nations have. This is how they rule. They rule so with their shields. To bring it into our context, we might say today, tanks, missiles, warheads, submarines, the the shields, they belong to God. Then on the other hand, some translate this word shields as kings. And it should be pointed out that that's what shields here in the original Hebrew literally means. It means kings. 
And so in that reading, God is saying that all the kings of the world belong to him. And so either way, whether we're talking about shields or kings, I think that the point is, is pretty clear, isn't it? They are God's. God owns them. They belong to him. They are his, and so they worship him. So here's the question. Here's something of the force of this royal psalm. Why ought the world to clap their hands and shout loud songs of praise? Why should all the earth sing praises to God? Brothers and sisters, why will, why will the nations gather before God as his people? For this reason, God is their king. God is not just the king of the Jews in the Old Testament, and he is not just the God of the church today. When it comes to God's kingdom, his dominion, his rule, and his reign, it knows no limits. It is not bound by a zip code. It is not bound to a particular ethnic group. It is not excluded because someone builds a border wall or something like that. The testimony of Scripture is that God is the king of the entire world. Beloved, this is all that was running on the front page of the Jerusalem Times. God is the king of the nations, and as such, all the world should worship him. That was in the mindset of the psalmist. That that was his perspective. But as we think about today, has anything changed? We might say it this way, as redemptive history has progressed, as we've seen God work throughout history, how are we now to understand this royal psalm? Well, now, with the giving way of the old covenant to the new, as we move from shadow to substance, we do see something of a shift. And the shift is this, today, the king of the world is the unique God-man. Or, to be more clear, it is Jesus Christ who is the king of the nations. Not just someday in the future, but he is the king of all the nations right now in this very moment. Remember, we just celebrated Christmas not more than, what, six weeks ago? Well, what were we celebrating, church, except that the king has come? The eternal Son of God took to Himself human nature. He became one of us. So that 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 little baby boy that was born in Bethlehem, who was that? That was the King of the world. This is the great Christian announcement every Christmas. Christ the King has come to earth. And don't miss this. Just as God worked a great victory in defeating Israel's enemies and bringing them into the promised land, that's verse 3 and 4's whole, he subdued peoples under us, he chose a heritage for us. So also Christ has won a great victory for us. Except it should be pointed out that our chief enemy is not some physical nation that is surrounding or threatening us. Beloved, what is our greatest enemy? Sin? Satan? 
death, hell itself. You see, like Adam, who was in the garden, we too have failed to keep God's law. And therefore, like Adam, who provoked God by his sin, so you and I, by our sin, have provoked God. You see, the God with whom we have to deal, He's not some grandpa in the sky who dotes on us. God is first and foremost holy and righteous and pure. And our sin is an affront to Him. Our sin provokes His right and just wrath. But rather than leave us in our sin, rather than condemn the entire human race and sort of wipe His hands of us, what has God done? God the Father has, in His love, sent to us His Son, empowered by His Spirit, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So that unlike us, and unlike Adam for that matter, Christ lived a life of utter perfection. And that life of utter perfection for Christ, it merits for Him righteousness. We can say without a shadow of a doubt that Christ was perfectly righteous. He was sinless. He was exemplary. Well, brothers and sisters, it is Christ's very righteousness that is gifted to us in the gospel. It becomes ours by grace alone through faith alone. And so while it's true, in the Old Covenant, the Jewish people were given a piece of real estate, the promised land. But what Christ gives us is infinitely better. You and I are fitted with His righteousness. We are assured of resurrection glory. And what Christ has promised is not that we will inherit some postage stamp-sized piece of real estate in the Middle East. What God has promised to us is that we will receive a new heaven and a new earth. God is going to remake the world and give to His people an all-new creation. This is the victory that Christ has won for us. He did so because He paid for our sin on the cross. He killed death in His resurrection. He defeated Satan by His perfect obedience. And He absorbed in His own body the wrath of God, the curse that was owed you and I. And God's people should generally say, Amen. But the story doesn't end there. We tend to think that that's where the story ends. But that's not how the Scriptures paint this picture. After Christ's resurrection, Christ ascends to heaven to do what? To be coronated as the King of the world. Which means, Christian, you have a king right now in these very moments. And I assure you, it is not Inslee. It is not Biden. And neither is it Trump or DeSantis. There is only one king. And that one king is the ruling and resurrected Jesus Christ. 
But again, the point of Psalm 47 is this. He's not just your king. He's not just the church's king. He's not just some spiritual king. But according to Psalm 47, he's the king of the world so that all of the nations owe their allegiance to him. Again, he is Revelation 19.6, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Which means Christ is not some tribal deity or just some king over your quiet times or some pope over a spiritual realm. But rather, every single created thing, down to the smallest of atoms, owes its allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. Church, you remember what Christ himself said at the end of Matthew's gospel, right before he ascends back to heaven. He says, all authority, not some, all authority in heaven, which we generally say, yeah, that makes sense. But Christ doesn't stop there. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So that the authority of Christ and his kingdom, it encompasses heaven and earth. In fact, the nations, those summoned in Psalm 47, we are actually told that these same nations are a gift from the Father to His Son. This is Psalm 2's declaration. We read, The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You catch that? What is the Father's promise to His Son? The Father says to the Son, All the nations are your inheritance. Church, you have to understand that the nations, all the world, is a wedding gift that God the Father gives to God the Son for His marriage to the church. That's what the world is. It is the Father's wedding gift to His Son. So Christian, please hear this. I don't want you to miss this. The incarnate Son of God following His earthly ministry. And by that we mean His virgin birth, His sinless life, His bloody cross, His death, His burial, His resurrection. Following all of that, the story doesn't end, but Christ was crowned King of the cosmos. The diadem of glory was placed upon His head as He sat down there at the right hand of God the Father where He currently rules and reigns over all of creation. And all of creation, all the nations, they will worship Him. They will pay homage to Him. They will serve Him. And if you ask why, the reason, at least according to Psalm 47, is quite simple. The reason the nations will worship Christ is because Christ is their king. So given, so given the reality of Christ's kingship now, what will our worship of King Jesus look like? Let me ask it, same thing, just a little bit of a different way. How does Psalm 47 instruct us today in our worship of Christ? Let me give you six words. First, our worship will be 
ecstatic. Ecstatic. Because of who Christ is and because of what Christ has done, please hear this, we will not worship as those who are bored or apathetic. Christ has been king, crowned king of the world. He has won our salvation. He has spilled his blood to make us his. How can we not then, verse 1, shout to God with loud songs of joy? Let me turn this through. If you are a Christian and you are not joyful in the presence of your king, then you, brother or sister, are in sin. And if that is you, then you need to check your heart, you need to repent of your sin, and you need to seek to know Christ more fully and more deeply. Because I assure you of this, the more that you know Christ, the more that you drink deeply from the wells of His grace, the more joyful you will be in Christ, and the less bored or apathetic you will be. Second, our worship will be exuberant. At this point, I would simply remind you of some of the language of the psalmist. Verse 1, hands are what? They're clapping. End of verse 1, loud songs of joy are being shouted. Four times in verse 6 alone, we are called to sing. So you've got just in this little psalm, clapping and shouting and singing. Now I know this makes some of you thoroughgoing Baptists a little nervous. But our worship of God is to be exuberant. Christian, we have not gathered for a funeral. We have gathered to worship the sin-slaying, death-defeating, and life-giving king of the universe. If that is true, and it is, why do so many of us act as if we're in the library? Brings us to a third word, and one that I think will keep us balanced. It's the word of facing. Because Christ is king, you know what that means? You're not. And neither am I. Christ and Christ alone is the king of the world. You you may be aware of William Ernest Henley's famous poem, Invictus. You remember those last words, how it ends? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's blasphemy. You're not the master of your fate. You're not the captain of your soul. Christ is. Christ is. Which means, yes, our worship should be ecstatic and our worship should be exuberant, but at the same time, it also must be, by definition, self-effacing. To say it another way, our joyful worship should be and must be mingled with humility and reverence and awe and sober-mindedness, and a desire to look away from ourselves and look to Christ. Still thinking about King Jesus and the worship that is owed Him. Fourth word is expansive. It is true, there are many today who oppose Christ's kingship. But I would remind you, that doesn't mean that He isn't their king. You might very well disagree with gravity, but I assure you, if you climb to the top of a building and jump off, you will see gravity's rulership over you. Similarly, Christ is, whether you like it or not, the universal king, the global ruler, the cosmic Christ. 
This is true of verse 1, all peoples. He is the great king, end of verse 2, over all the earth. Christ is the king of all the earth, verse 7. He reigns over the nations, plural, verse 8. And all the shields, plural, or kings of the earth belong to him, verse 9. As Spurgeon put it, not a hamlet or an island is excluded from his dominion. Beloved, Christ is king, and his kingdom knows no bounds. What that means then is as Christians, we should pray for and we should work toward all people worshiping Christ. This is true of the children that God has entrusted to us just as much as it is true of global missions. From those who are across the world to those who are simply across the street. They are all, each and every one of them, called upon to bow the knee to their king. And the church has been given the unique message of the gospel. And it is our job, according to King Jesus, to make disciples of all the nations. So that in a very real sense, the church, and not just collectively or corporately, but individually as Christians, we are called to be ambassadors, ambassadors for the kingdom of Christ. Now, because Christ is king of the world, we should also worship him exclusively. And that's our fifth word, exclusive. I would warn you, brothers and sisters, not to settle for cheap imitations, We will have no bootleg Christs here, no pseudo-kings, no plastic saviors. Christ and Christ alone is to be worshipped. That means, politically speaking, and make no mistake about it, the very proclamation that Christ is king is a political statement, is it not? You and I as Christians, we must, with all of our might, resist the temptation to find refuge, safety, or salvation in governors, presidents, or the Republican Party. Christ and Christ alone is our King, and He and He alone is worthy of our worship. All must bow to Him. All must serve Him, and that includes the state. Romans 13 is abundantly clear. The state exists by God, and the state exists for God, but the state does not exist independent from God. From church members to neighbors, from mayors to governors, from dog catchers to public school superintendents, all must worship Christ and Christ alone. Let me also add in thinking about our worship of Christ being exclusive we must also push back against other pseudo-saviors that perhaps we, as Christians, are more prone to trust in. And what I mean by that is, if we're honest, at least in my experience, we tend to be a people who love to worship ourselves. We do this in subtle ways and then in not-so-subtle ways. As Christians, we find this to be the case when we fall into worshiping our emotions. 
We worship what others think about us. Could be at school. It could be at the job. You and I as Christians, we we are such idol-making factories in our heart that we will actually begin to worship worship. We, We will worship the worship experience more than we worship Christ. And you know what that amounts to? When we begin to worship the worship experience, we're really just worshiping ourselves. We're using Christ as a means to an end. Think about it. How often do we find ourselves asking something like this? How did you like church today? Did you enjoy worship today? What did you get out of church? Now, please, do not misunderstand me. Those are not necessarily bad questions. But I would submit to you that they do get us off on the wrong foot of sorts. Instead of asking if we enjoyed worship, as if worship is something that is designed to please us, we would do better to ask, was Christ pleased by our worship today? Did we honor Him? Was my attitude glorifying in His sight? Did I actually sing praises to him or did I simply mouth, uh, mouth the words out of sort of rote memory? What truth of Christ was pressed upon my heart, my mind, my conscience today as the word of God was preached? And what will I do with that truth? Did I approach Christ today in humility, with reverence, in utter dependence, and with thankfulness. Church, what I'm wanting us to see is that for our worship to be exclusive, it must be God-centered and Christ-focused, not me-centered and comfort-focused. This is something that has absolutely plagued the evangelical church in the West for decades now. Back in the late 90s, J.I. Packer offered this lament. He said, Worship has largely been replaced, at least in the West, by a form of entertainment calculated to give worshipers the equivalent of a sauna or jacuzzi experience and send them away feeling relaxed and tuned up all at the same time. Now, reflecting on this so-called hot tub religion... Packer asserts, the question is not whether a particular liturgical form is used, but whether a God-centered, as distinct from man-centered perspective is maintained. And that, church, is what I really think Psalm 47 would have us to see. Packer has hit the nail on the head. To worship God exclusively is, by definition, to have a God-centered and a Christ-centered focus. And that means you and I are going to have to get out of the way. So what will our worship of King Jesus look like? It will be ecstatic, exuberant, effacing, expansive, exclusive, and now finally, bear with me, expectant. Our worship will be expectant. Is Christ's kingship currently contested? Yes, of course. The world, no doubt, stands in opposition to its rightful king. But know this. In and through the gospel, Christ is right now in these very moments making his enemies his footstool. 
He is, if we want to borrow the language from verse 3, subduing peoples and putting nations under his feet. The promise of the word of God is that one day, one day, church, really one day, the knowledge of Christ will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. The princes, verse 9, of the peoples will gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Given this reality, I want to encourage you very briefly, brothers and sisters, and here's how I would do so. Instead of reading Scripture through the lens of Fox News, read it through the lens of God's Word. Christ will triumph. His kingdom will be victorious. He is already crowned king of the world. And that sort of truth should elicit forth from us all sorts of praise and worship and trust and joy. And we know that one day the world will recognize their king. And the world like us will bow before him and worship him. So until then, what we should do as a church is faithfully model for the world what it looks like to worship King Jesus. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our great God and Father, you have told us in your word that the one to whom you will look is he who is contrite and and humble and trembles at your word. We pray that your spirit would be working grace in our hearts even now so that we would be a people who humble and tremble before your word. We thank you for Christ, your son, no longer a baby born in Bethlehem, but the king of the world. He has been crowned, sitting at your right hand, interceding for us, making his enemies his footstool. We pray that his kingdom would advance. We pray that the kingdom would spread out and cover the earth. We pray that we would be faithful ambassadors. We pray that you would help us to see these things for the truth that they are. We pray that you would engender within us, even in our service of worship this morning, faith that we would trust Jesus that we would see a king who does not desire to exploit us, but a king who desires to love us and to serve us, that our hearts would be warmed, that our minds would be renewed, that the affections of our hearts would be stirred, that our, that our wills would be bent toward his. We pray that you'd give us a love one for another. We pray that you'd give us a love for the community that you have placed us in. We pray that redeeming grace for our children's children's children would be a place in which Christ is proclaimed. We ask these things in the King's name. Amen.